Baruch Hashem, good morning, Boker Tov, welcome everyone to our Aliyah day, Parashat Toldot. Today we are going to be looking at the first and second reading of Parashat Toldot. I apologize, yesterday I uh, did not get a chance to do the Aliyah day because we had the uh, wonderful, amazing Hanukkah craft fair which was a huge success, but we also um, ordered a whole bunch of kosher chicken, and I had to take care of that and bring that in so that people could have excellent prices on kosher chicken. This is a very busy day. Did some other things yesterday. Anyway, by the time uh, we got done with everything that happened yesterday, it was already late. So, Mabrukashim. <clears throat> The second Aliyah is actually a very short Aliyah, so Hashem knows what's going on, and uh, it all works out. So, Baruch Hashem, first and second Aliyah today, on this Yom Sheni, Parashat Toldot, we'll be looking at Breshit, chapter 25, and uh, beginning in verse 19. So, we have here the discussion <coughs> of Isaac. It says, and these are the offspring of Isaac. So I think we're back. Sorry about that. If you're listening to the podcast, sorry for the uh, the uh, moment of silence there because my computer went down. We had to bring everything back. Technology, Baruch Hashem. All right. So I think we're rolling now. Yes, we are. Let's start again. Parashat Toldot. Thank God for the internet. And sometimes it's our friend and sometimes it isn't. And these are the offspring of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Now, there's a very interesting uh, uh, notation here why it talks about in Baba Matzia 87a. Why is there a repetition of the phrase Abraham begot Isaac? Why do we have to hear this again? We already know that Isaac is Abraham's son, so why are we doing this? Well, this is Parashat Toldot. So it's talking about the generations of Abraham. So therefore, it emphasizes that, in fact, Isaac is uh, the son of Abraham. And just to reiterate, we learned this uh, this lesson from a couple of aliyot back, but it's worth repeating. It says, although the Pasuk already referred to Yitzhak as the son of Abraham, and it repeats it again. It emphasizes it, in other words. After Sarah gave birth to Yitzhak, many mocked Abraham and Sarah, saying that they, they had... Uh, they either kidnapped the baby and claimed it was theirs, or they said that uh, this was actually the baby of Abimelech, and so they're just trying to play a game, right? So it says, to prove that this was not the case, <clears throat> at the feast that Abraham made when Sarah weaned Yitzhak, Sarah miraculously nursed the young of all her guests. Even so, some people continued to mock them, 
while it was now obvious that Sarah had given birth at the age of 90, what proof was there that Abraham, who was 100 years old, was the father? When they said this, Hashem made Yitzhak look so similar to Abraham that everyone had to admit Abraham begot Yitzhak. So, Hashem literally transformed the way that Isaac looked so that whenever you saw the son, you would see the father. So, <clears throat> we continue reading. It says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian, from Padan Aram, sister of Laban, the Armenian, as a wife for himself. Isaac entreated by him and his, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. Now, there's also an interesting notation here. I just like the way this is, this is read from Sukkah 14a. It says the word Vayetar, entreated, is related to the word Eter, which means a shovel or a pitchfork. The term is used to describe prayer because just as pitchfork turns over the grain and tosses it from one place to the other, so too the prayers of the righteous have the power to turn over decrees. That is, they cause Hashem to change from the attribute of anger to the attribute of mercy. Again, from Sukkah 14a. This reminded me of the uh, verse in the letter that was written by Yaakov, the brother of Mashiach, commonly known as James in English Bible, in James 5.17, <coughs> where he's talking about the power of prayer. Excuse me. And he says that the, he talks about the prayer of the righteous man avails much. <coughs> and he likens that prayer to the prayer of Elijah. And I love what he says in that, that section. It's so inspiring. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. Which means that all of us have the potential to arrive to the level of Elijah. He was a man just like us. And yet, he, what made him so great was he was a man of faith. He was a man of, of trust. He was a man of obedience, just like Abraham, just like Isaac. And so, we have the power, if we have the right spirit, we have the power to affect real change in the atmosphere, spiritually and naturally. Our prayer can literally uh, change the natural order because God is the, the God of all creation. And he's put it in our hands to have such power. So it says in verse 22, <clears throat> the children agitated, agitated within her, and she said, if so, why am I thus? So Abraham, excuse me, so Isaac prayed for his wife. It turns out that it talks about prayed opposite his wife. And the reason he prayed opposite his wife, it says in one, uh, in many commentations that, comment, commentators rather, say that she prayed in one quarter and he prayed in the other. And the, the reason is because they were actually both barren. It wasn't just her that was the, uh, you know, the, the quote-unquote problem. She couldn't have a child. But actually Isaac too was sterile. So they prayed and that, she became uh, she became, became pregnant. She conceived. And it says the children agitated within her, and she said, If so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of Hashem. Now, before I bring down the uh, comments on this, I wanted to make mention of something here that I thought was just very interesting. In the opening comments of the art scroll to this parasha, it talks about I, uh, Abraham. It says here, each of the patriarchs, 
each of the patriarchs maintained a yeshiva in which he taught about the existence of God and God's will. God's will is a euphemism for Torah. So, first lesson to be learned is that if we're following in the footsteps of patriarchs, if we have actually the faith of Abraham, because people say all the time, because they read it so much, <clears throat> that Abraham was justified by faith. Therefore, if we have the faith of Abraham, then we too should be justified by our faith. We're going to learn in just a moment what actually was the faith of Abraham, because faith of Abraham is not just what he believed, but more so what he did. But the, the fact here is that we're following the footsteps of Abraham. That means we have the, the faith of Abraham. In this case, Abraham had a yeshiva. And at that yeshiva, he taught the will of God. The will of God is the law of Moses, the Torah of God. It's the word of God. That's what he taught. Not Nothing else, no, nothing uh, other than that. But I love what it says here. It says, Abraham's academy had hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of students. So we reminded me of the fact that when, at one point, the apostle Shaul goes to Yerushalayim and he meets the uh, he meets the the big uh, the big leaders he meets Kepha he meets uh, Yaakov and Kepha makes a statement he says listen there are a whole bunch of people here in Jerusalem who are obedient to the Torah they're living as Pharisees they're living as Orthodox Jews Torah true Jews and they believe in, in the Mashiach now, the word that's used there in the Greek is actually the word for myriad, which means thousands, even tens of thousands. There were thousands of people in Jerusalem at that time who were going to the yeshiva of Yaakov and Kepha, and they were learning Torah, and they were learning about Mashiach. Why? Because that's exactly what Abraham did. And we haven't seen that. We have not really seen that in 2,000 years. And um, I'm very proud of the fact, humbled by the fact, really, that our synagogue is one of the only, or at least one of the extreme few, I don't know of another, maybe there are, that actually teach an authentic Judaism uh, centered on Messiah Yeshua. So that we're seeing these myriads once again come to be, but this hasn't happened in 2,000 years. So anyway, it says concerning verse 22, the children agitated. The rabbis explain <clears throat> that this word is derived from the roots reish, vav, uh, zadi, sofit, to run. When Rebecca passed the Torah Academy of Shimon Eber, Jacob ran and struggled to come forth. And when she passed the Temple of Idol Worship, Esau ran and struggled to come forth from the Midrash. The Gur explained that this embryonic Jacob-Esau struggle was not influenced by their personal good and evil inclinations, for that they're they're still in the womb. They don't have a, they don't have the evil inclination. Rather, Jacob and Esau represented cosmic forces in creation, forces that transcend the normal course of personality development that existed even before birth. So this should give us pause. If we are people <clears throat> that feel drawn towards Torah, that feel drawn towards Judaism. They feel drawn to, to Yiddishkeit. This is good. We have the spirit of Jacob, so to speak. But if we are people who every time we pass by a Christmas display, we're drawn by that, oh, I miss it. 
Are we passed by a Halloween? Oh, I miss it. Are we passed by an Easter? Oh, I miss it. Are we passed by some type of uh, secular thing? Oh, I wish I was doing that. We have the spirit of Esau. We should be careful. We should pray. We should ask Hashem to give us the spirit of Yaakov. So it says she went to inquire. To whom did she go? She went to Shem, the son of Noah, <coughs> to inquire. Why? Because he was a prophet. She uh, went to ask him, what's going on? How come I have uh, this? What's, what, what's this tension I feel? So it was Shem who told her that she had two nations within her. And then when it says in verse 23, and Hashem said to her, the sages bring down, that this is actually Hashem speaking through the, his prophet Shem. And remember, Shem actually lived, he lived, uh, I believe it was 60 more years after Abraham died. So he lived a very long time. <clears throat> so he was the one who told her, the next verse 23, two nations are in your room, two regimes from, uh, from your insides shall be separated, the mighty, the might, excuse me, the might shall pass from one regime to the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Incidentally, <laughs> stepping back to verse 22, 21 rather, I thought this was very interesting. It says that Isaac uh, entreated, we talked about the uh, the root there, the ayin, tav, resh, uh, meaning to turn over. Well, there's a, uh, a statement here in the article that says the root denotes abundant. Thus, the sense of the verse is that Isaac prayed abundantly for Rebecca, and she simultaneously prayed on her own behalf. He was opposite her in the sense that he stood in one corner and she stood in the other. That's from Rashi. Now, this comes from Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, chapter 32, and it's actually in your article, if you have the article Puman. It says, also Isaac took his barren wife to pray for her on Mount Moriah, the site of the Akita. Okay? Now, why do you do that? Well, <coughs> obviously, <coughs> pardon me, obviously there's a lot of Kedusha in that area, right? The site of the altar, the site of the Holy Temple. Uh, the site where he was offered up as a sacrifice. But in Judaism, there is a custom. When you're really needing your prayers answered, and this I, I have sources about this, articles that have been written, really remarkable. When a Jew really needs his prayer to be answered, and who doesn't want their prayer to be answered? It's kind of a funny statement. You pray, whether it's answered or not, you don't care. Who says that? No, everybody wants their prayer answered. When a Jew really wants his prayer to be answered, he'll go to the grave of a Zadik, and he will not pray to the Zadik, right? In other religions, they pray to their saints. They don't pray to the Zadik. They pray to Hashem in the merit of the Zadik, right? So, <clears throat> Isaac is the one who establishes this tradition. He takes his wife to the Akedah to pray to Hashem and the merit of the Akedah. But here's the problem. He's not dead. He's alive. He's a living sacrifice. He's praying in the merit of the Akedah. He is the Akedah, but wait a minute. He isn't the Akedah. Who was the Akedah, or more importantly, what was the Akedah offered up in his place? It was the ram. But what ram? Any ram? No. 
the ram that was created before creation, who ran to take his place. Who is that ram represented? The sages say that when Abraham took hold of the ram or saw the ram, that he saw the days of Mashiach and was glad. Yeshua later says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Who is the ram? The ram is Yeshua. So when he goes to the place of the Akedah and he prays for his wife in the merit of the Akedah, he is praying in the merit of Yeshua. So we see here uh, an established uh, reality for us when we pray. We don't pray to Yeshua. We pray in the merit of Yeshua. The difference between our Zadik and the Zadikim to which many Jews pray is that our Zadik is no longer in the grave, just like when the Akedah, Isaac went to the place of the Akedah, the altar was empty. There was no, no one there. Why? Because he was praying to an offering that was a living sacrifice. Yeshua HaMashiach, blessed be he. Amen. So, <clears throat> we continue reading. When her term grew full, and behold, there were twins in her womb, the first one emerged red, entirely like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother emerged with his hand grasping the heel of Esau, so he called his name Yaakov. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore him. The lads grew up, and Esau became one who knows trapping, a man of the field, but Jacob was a wholesome man abiding in tents. Now, when it talks about uh, Jacob, or excuse me, Esau being a trapper, a hunter, not, it doesn't just mean that he was a good hunter but, and, and, a, and a trapper, but it also means that he would trap his father with flattery speech. He would ask his father questions that would make it appear that he was greatly righteous. He would ask him about uh, tithing of straw and I believe uh, you know, salt or some other herb or something. When he knew that uh, you, didn't, you didn't have to tithe those things, but when he asked his father the question, his father thought, oh, look, my son is such a Zadik that he even is concerned about tithing something he doesn't have a requirement to tithe. We have to be careful about flattery speech. We have to be careful that people don't beguile us by their words, but we have to look at the totality of their life. But that's how he trapped his father. He, he beguiled his father thinking that he was such a uh, good man. It talks about Yaakov abiding in tents. Some have interpreted this, some uh, non-Jewish uh, Bible uh, commentators interpreted this to mean that Esau was a, a brawny man and Jacob was a weak man, that he was like a mama's boy. He stayed around the tents. That doesn't, that's not what it means. <clears throat> it means that he abided in tents, meaning that, as Rabbi Monk brings down, this refers to the tent of Shem and the tent of Aver. That means that Jacob studied the divine law. He studied, when it says he, abi he, he abided in the tents, that he spent his days, in, in, instead of trying to beguile his father and trap his father, he spent his days learning the will of God and being educated in the will of God. Now, there's a whole statement, for the sake of time, I won't read it, from the Talmud. Um, I'll, come, I'll give you the reference. Let's see, where is the reference here? There's an entire statement in the Talmud about the life of, uh, of uh, Yaakov. Yes, this comes from uh, Megillah 17a. It breaks down the years of Yaakov's life and uh, compares it to the, uh, to the chronology of the, of the Torah. Basically, bottom line is that he spent 14 years in the yeshiva of Shem and Eber. <laughs> but I like the statement from Rabbi Mok. I just, I just 
lately have been just really, I don't know, just really inspired by Avraham reading through these aliyot. And I wanted to read this statement here because in our synagogue, we have a desire for outreach, a desire for inreach, a desire for um, to, to bring the message to people's life. And so it says here, his grandfather, talking about Abraham, his grandfather had had the soul of a missionary, of a preacher, and continuously proclaimed the majesty of God to his contemporaries. His missionary work, talking about Abraham, his missionary work was his raison d'entre, his life's goal. This was his purpose of who he was. His life's goal was to convince men and to lead them to God. So it says, kind of in a negative fashion, the grandson was no longer possessed this missionizing flame. This is what's happened in Judaism today. The missionizing flame has gone up. His nature led him to concentrate on the study and knowledge of God. Thus, the patriarchs show us two fundamental concepts, both equally legitimate, expansion and concentration. True, it's important that we must be learners of God's word. And so Jacob brings down <coughs> this, uh, brings down this, this truth that he learns God's word. But the, the sad part is that he's lost the flame. He's lost the passion of the missionary efforts of his grandfather. His grandfather wanted to bring the word of God to the entire world. He didn't want to just limit it to himself or his whole family. And so you have, you have two sides that are intended to work together. They're not supposed to be opposites. In the same way, the, uh, the law of, of the spirit and the law of, uh, or I should say, the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law are meant to work together, not to be polar opposites. And so in the same way, we're supposed to study, we're supposed to learn, we're supposed to grow, but the purpose of the study and the purpose of the growing is to bring sparks of holiness into uh, the world. So it says <clears throat> that he hung around the tents and Jacob was a great, excuse me, Esau was a great hunter. It says here that uh, Isaac loved Esau for the game of, in, in, in his mouth, but Rebekah loved Yaakov. Yaakov simmered a stew. Now, I want to say, by the way, before I get into the, the stew part, is that we look at Esau, and we see a wicked man, an evil man, all right? <clears throat> and um, a lot of times we're turned off by wickedness. We're turned off by evil. We look at people that are living a non-Torah life, and it just, oh, it bothers us. But we have to have the spirit of of Abraham, because Abraham saw within people sparks of holiness, and Isaac too saw within his son Esau a spark of holiness. And I love what it says in the Kehol Tumash in the Inner Dimensions. It says, "Isaac loved Esau for the game he provided." Met metaphorically, game refers to the sublime sparks of holiness that Esau possessed including the sparks of the lofty souls of future converts to Judaism who would become great Jewish leaders. Now listen to this. We think about Judaism, and excuse, I'm sorry, I have a little, little cold I'm dealing with. Um, we, we, when we think about the great Jewish rabbis, many people think that these great Jewish rabbis uh, 
were grew up in in Jewish homes, you know, <laughs> and they did. Listen to what it says. Counted among Esau's descendants are, is the prophet Obadiah. The great sages of the Mishnah, Shemaye and Aftilon, these were the two Zagot. These were the ones who preceded uh, Hillel and Shimei. That they were the leaders of all Judaism. They were converts. It says Rabbi Akiva, a convert. Rabbi Mir, a convert. Angelos, who translated the entire Torah into, into Aramaic. And the sages say that we should read the Torah portion twice in Hebrew and once in Aramaic every single week. And whose Aramaic should we read? Ankelos, a convert. These are the people that Isaac and Abraham saw. He, he looked into the idolaters and he said there's sparks of holiness there. And we need to seek those sparks of holiness. And, and it's not up to us. I, we were having a discussion uh, at third meal on Shabbat. Such a great discussion. And it's not up to us. We look at somebody and say, I don't know if I should tell them about Torah. Should I give them candles? Should I encourage that woman to light candles? Should I tell them about Torah? I mean, you know, I mean, look at them. They're probably not going to take it. That's not up to us. We're supposed to be messengers, not salespeople. We're not responsible for whether or not they buy the product. We're responsible for telling them about the product. So it says here, as we will see, Isaac's lifelong mission was to dig beneath the surface and reveal the dormant potential in that which appeared to be lowly and unredeemable. By the way, we often see that the, the biggest lights of, of, of Yeshua, the biggest lights of Torah, came from those that were considered the least. So it says it was precisely for this reason that he loved Esau so greatly and wanted to give him his blessing. For he felt that by showering him with love and blessing, he would awaken and unleash the potential for holiness hidden deep within him. This is why we have to love people and love on people and we have to give people a smile. And let me just tell you that when you're out and about in the, in the world, wherever you are, walking into a bookstore, walking into a grocery store, walking into your office, you need to be somebody who beams with light. And we have to really be conscious about that because we're all humans and things happen and we're on our way to work and somebody cuts us off or we're having a bad day and our, our kids are acting up and we feel frustrated. But we have to understand that we represent the kingdom. We represent the king who rules over kings, must be he. And therefore, we have to be people of great light and put on a big smile and and tell people we love them, and we have to ask God that when we don't feel joyful, that please give us joy. We have to work on it. It takes effort. It takes effort. So it says, <clears throat> Jacob simmered a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Pour into me now some of that very red stuff, for I am exhausted. He therefore called his name Edom. Now this happened, by the way, the sages bring down this happened. This happened to be the day that Abraham died and the stew that uh, Jacob was making, he was actually making for his father Isaac because uh, lentil stew, red lentil stew, is a traditional dish of mourning. There's another reason why, though, e Esau came and he was so famished. And this is brought down by the Midrash, brought down by the Talmud. It also is brought down by the book of Yasher. But it says that Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Rashi elaborates, tired from killing. That day, he had killed his hunting rival, King King Nimrod. Now, the book of Yasher brings down also that in addition to just killing Nimrod, it goes into the entire story about that, uh, but in addition to killing Nimrod, what he was really after was the cloak 
that God had made, the garment that God had made Adam. And later, Jacob would wear this garment um, to disguise himself as his brother Esau. And then many believe, including myself, that later Jacob would give that garment to uh, his son Joseph. Why did Esau want the garment? Because the garment had, had power. It had a, an anointing on it. This is what made Nimrod such a great leader and such a great hunter. But really it tells us the base, the debased nature of Esau. Here his grandfather, I, uh, Abraham, died. <clears throat> and instead of really being concerned with the funeral in the morning, he's out trying to kill someone because he saw this as his great opportunity to really kind of rise to power. Now he's the son. He's not really concerned about the mission. He wants the, he wants the garment, not because he's concerned because it's the garment that God made. He doesn't even really believe in God all that much, but he wants the power associated with it. So just a lot going on here in this story. The, by the way, the sages talk, talk about the fact that Jacob was actually conceived first, but because he did not come from the womb first, he was technically not the firstborn. But really the pride of the firstborn was really belonged to him. So it says, Jacob said, sell as this day your birthright to me. Now, many people talk about this and say that this is where Jacob connived his way. He, he, he beguiled Esau and tricked him. But there's no trick here. This is actually a sale. Jacob is saying, I want, your, I want the birthright and I want you to sell it to me for a bowl of soup. Esau said, look, I'm going to die. So what's use of the birthright to me? Jacob, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, Esau did not believe in the mission. It says that, uh, you know, he, he didn't even believe in resurrection. I'm going to die, so what's the good of the birthright to me? He didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. There's lots of going on here. Uh, Jacob also knew that according to uh, the custom of the time that, you know, it says here in the art scroll, uh, according to the Midrash, that Esau was going to be the priest. So, so Jacob saw a big disaster here. I have this... Uh, I have this brother who's just a reprobate, and he's going to be the one offering up the sacrifice. Esau also knew the reason. One of the reasons he said, I'm going to die is because he knew he was an evil man. He knew that he was supposed to give the uh, offering. And so he knew that most likely he would die because he was an impure man trying to give a pure offering. And he, he figured he was going to die because of that. So he's, lot, like I said, a lot going on here. <clears throat> so it says here, excuse me. It says Esau came in from the field. The great of all the nations stood in the mourner's row and lamented. Woe to the world that has lost its leader. Talking about Abraham. Woe to the ship that has lost its pilot. Baba Basra 91b. But Esau went out to do his evil business. He just He's a reprobate. So Esau said, look, I'm going to die. So what good is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me this day. He swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and got up and left, and Esau spurned his birthright. This was a legal translation, a transaction, rather. And Esau gave his birthright to Jacob uh, for a bowl of soup. This is what he thought. This was that, that was how valuable the covenant was to him. Now, many people, we, we look at Esau and we would say, how could Esau give up all of that for a bowl of bread, lentil, soup? Are you kidding me? Well, my friends, I can only tell you this. <coughs> Pardon me. 
that I have had many conversations with people through the years, and they have said to me personally through the years, I could never be a Jew. I could never be a Torah Jew. I could never follow the law of Moses. I could never live this life, this Lapid life, because I could never give up bacon, because I could never uh, not eat shrimps. Oh, because uh, how, what would I do without the catfish fry? Are you kidding me? You're going to give up all the bracha. You're going to give up all the kalusha. You're going to give up all the mission. We talk about Esau giving up for a bowl of soup. People can't live for God, what, because they can't, they sell their, they sell their birthright for bacon? They sell their birthright for crawfish? They sell their birthright for its lobster tail? This is what we have to think about. We're talking here about a man selling his birthright for a bowl of soup, and people, many of us, maybe it's not just, maybe it's not kashrut. Maybe it's other things. I could never be a Jew because, well, you know, I, I've got uh, my kids play soccer on Saturdays. I could never be a, a Jew. I couldn't do it because my son, you know, he's really big into football. And so we Friday night football, big thing in my house. So, you know, football, I got to do it. I, it wouldn't work for me. We got to think about those things uh, because we have to ask ourselves, do we have the spirit of Yaakov or the spirit of Esau? These are just, look, maybe that's not you. Maybe it's somebody you know or something. But the point being is we have to really look in ourselves in the mirror and say, what am I doing here? Am I selling my birthright for soccer? Am I selling my birthright for football? Am I selling my birthright for pork? Am I selling my birthright for food? What's going on? What, what's more important? What's more important? So <clears throat> we get into chapter 26. Uh, this uh, is a very important statement we're about to make. We're going to go a little bit over our time today because we missed yesterday. So just a little bit. So it says here. There was a famine in the land aside from the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of Philistia, to Gerar. And Adonai appeared to him and said, Do not descend to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I shall indicate to you. Again, Isaac was not allowed to leave the land. He was the only patriarch that was not allowed to leave the Holy Land. And the reason was because he was a holy, considered a holy burnt offering. He was to be treated different because of his sanctified status, which teaches us a valuable lesson. If we are, in fact, living holy uh, sacrifices of Hashem, we've been, we've been uh, crucified with Mashiach. Nevertheless, we live. If that is truly us, then our lives must be considered different. So... Isaac was not allowed to live, leave the land. Why? Because he was holy. And we too treat our lives different because we are holy. Someone says, why did Jews eat kosher? Well, because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have know how to cook it, whatever. That's all nonsense. The Torah tells us why we eat kosher. Because it says in Leviticus 11.45, because you are to be holy because I am holy. The whole point of living a Torah life is holiness. That's the whole point. And God tells us how to live holy. It's not nebulous. So it says, <coughs> pardon me, again, sorry for my cough. It says here, um, verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. 
Verse 4, I will increase your offspring like the stars of the heavens, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves, bless themselves by your offspring. Again, we can go back and look at the blessing goes Father Abraham, and how that uh, uh, this this can mean this does it can mean and does mean to be engrafted into you. So it says in verse five. If you don't uh, remember that, you can go back and listen to some other aliyot that it's from yet from the uh, Talmud Yevamot specifically says that when it says Abraham uh, that the nations will be blessed by you, it literally means be grafted into you. So it says in verse five, because Abraham, listen to this. This is, this is the verse I want to get to. This verse tells us what it means to have the faith of Abraham. When it says Abraham was justified by faith, this is the, as, as uh, Paul Harvey would say, this is the rest of the story. It says in verse 5, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and observed my safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torahs. So, the art scroll brings down that Abraham observed the entire Torah. How did he observe the entire Torah? How in the world did that happen? Well, many people say, I'm led by the Spirit. Fantastic. Because Rabbi Mok says, he knew them through the gift of prophecy. Quote, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, had transmitted them and he, to him, and he transmitted them to his descendants. Let me read that again. We're led by the Spirit, Yofi. Beautiful. Because that's exactly how Abraham lived. He was led by the Spirit, and the Spirit led him to keep the Torah, and Abraham handed down that Torah to his descendants. And it says here, Rabbi Monk specifically says, I'm reading to you in the Hebrew text of Rabbi Monk, it says, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So when, you, when Hashem shows up to Yitzhak, he says, listen, the reason I'm blessing you is because Abraham obeyed me. Yes, he believed in me. Of course, of course he believed in me. You have to start with faith. If you don't believe, then how are you doing, right? But belief doesn't stop there. <clears throat> he says, he observed my, he obeyed my voice, observed my safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, my doors. The article Humash brings down that safeguards are the rabbinic enactments, the commandments are the moral laws, the decrees are, are laws that we don't have an explanation for. <clears throat> and he actually says the word for Torah here is a uh, a double expression, a plural expression. So it's the Torahs. He, he observed my Torahs, meaning that there's an oral Torah and a written Torah. You might be watching this today and say, I don't believe in the oral Torah. And my response to you would just be a very simple question, yes or no. One second. Yes or no question? Do you have a Bible and do you believe it's the Holy Word of God? Answer that most likely is yes. I can't hear you. I'm assuming it's yes. If you believe that, then you believe in the oral Torah because it's the, the Jewish men of the great assembly who put your Bible that you're holding together, together. And so through their oral Torah, they've given you the Bible. So if you're holding the Bible and you run around saying this is the Word of God, then you believe in the oral Torah. So it says here another great insight. A novel interpretation from Rabbi Hirsch derives the word Torah from hey reish hey, which means conceived. Just as an embryo grows from a seed that is implanted at conception, so too God's teaching plants a seed, so to speak, which develops into the recipient, excuse me, which develops in the recipient to an ever greater consciousness 
of good. So we see here that the word of God is likened to a seed that is planted and it grows. This is why you don't have to be a super Jew when you first come to Torah. You, the seed is planted and it grows over time and it bears fruit and a little fruit here, a little fruit there, etc. Right? <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and so this is harkens back, you might imagine, to when Yeshua was talking about the fact that this the the kingdom is like a, a someone who scatters seed on the ground, and we have to we have to set about scattering the seed. And some seed is going to fall on good soil and produce fruit, and some is going to be eaten up, and some is going to fall on stones, and so on and so on and so on. But our mission is to spread the seed, to spread the word. That's what we're called to do. So uh, it says here <coughs> that where are we going back to? Uh, yes. So it says that. Uh, in verse 7, when the men of that place, he, he set out, so so he settled in Gerar. Verse 6. Verse 7. This gets into the uh, second ally, which we're almost, almost done. Almost done. It says, when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For she he was afraid of that uh, if he said, my wife, uh, lest the men of the place kill me because of Rebecca, for she's fair to look upon. She's a nice looking lady. Verse 8. And it came to pass, as his days were lengthened, that Abimelech, the king of Philistia, Philistines, rather, Gazed down from the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was jesting with his wife, Rebekah. And Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, But look, she's your wife. How could you say that she's my sister? And Isaac said, Because I said, I would be killed because of her. And Abimelech said, What is it that you've done to us? One of the people has nearly lain with your wife. Now, this is kind of a code talk. He's talking about himself. The way the Hebrew reads, it's uh, one of the people is a term, which it's a achad ha'am. Is a term that means like a distinguished person, meaning the king. He says, One of the people was nearly lame with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Abimelech then warned all the people, saying, Whoever molests this man and his wife shall surely be put to death. So he actually issues a royal decree. 